0: There's an outline sheet in your worship folder if you'd like to use that. Also, if, if you would, open your Bibles again, back up to that uh, second chapter of Philippians that we read just a little bit earlier. We're going to be looking at some some verses that uh, will not be on the screen and that are not listed on the outline sheet and as we uh, do that. The... Um, realization that, that uh, normally Shirley Ann is uh, not the one playing, it's normally Leela, and yet I whispered to Garen that Shirley Ann was, was playing, she is good. So. <laughs> we love you. <clears throat> <clears throat> Little boy's sister was very ill. She needed a blood transfusion and in all the testing it was determined that her brother had the blood type that was needed for his sister's recovery. The doctor asked him if he was willing to give his blood to help save his sister's life and the boy though visibly frightened said that yes he would. Later As the procedure was being completed, the little boy was laying there. He turned his head looked at the doctor and said quietly, Doctor, when do I die? And for the first time, the doctor realized the extent of the boy's sacrifice. He, He thought that giving his blood was giving up his life. And yet he was willing to do it. Now, as precious as that little story is, it pales in comparison to the true sacrifice of Jesus willingly shedding his blood, giving up his life on our behalf. And that's really what the Apostle Paul, in the first part of his letter to the believers there in the city of Philippi, urges them to do. If you have your Bibles open, look at the first part of chapter 1. Well, that's in verse 27 of chapter 1. When He says, I urge you to live a life, and then there's this little phrase, worthy of the gospel. I urge you to live a life worthy of the gospel. Then at the beginning of the second chapter, it's not going to come up on the screen, it's verses 1 to 4. Look at that. Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. As we've mentioned already this morning, we're using a little book by Tom Rainer. It's called, I'm I'm a Church Member. We've given it out to all the families of the church. We still have some. If you didn't get one, we'd like you to have one. We'd be happy to get that to you. It's a source for this series of messages. In the third chapter, he, he says, I will not let my church be about me. That's the name of the chapter. I will not let my church be about me. You look at that, you think about it, and what's happening is he's really echoing Paul's command all those centuries ago that we read about here in Philippians. And yet it's a call to every one of us here and now. Sacrifice. Being a servant. To make his point, Paul gives one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture about the nature, the character of Christ. And it's one of the most demanding challenges to us as his followers. So hand in hand, all within one body of verses, there's the most beautiful picture in all of Scripture about the nature and character of Christ. And then in addition to it and with it is one of the most demanding challenges to us as Jesus' followers. Let's take a look at it then. What we see first of all as we move through this passage is the servant example of Jesus, and what Paul writes about is his unselfish disposition. Look at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind that Christ Jesus had. In your all your relationships, have the same, the same attitude. One of the things that I, don't, I probably would not be able to count, the number of times that my mom said to me, especially when I was in high school, <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> what were you thinking? And you know the standard response. You know it. You've said it. You know it. Oh no. Okay. What were you thinking? If a friend does something that we don't quite comprehend, we might wonder or ask what he or she has in mind. What were you thinking? What do you have in mind? And that's how Paul is using the word attitude or mind or disposition here in verse 5. It's the outer expression of the integration. It's the outer expression of the integration of thought and feeling and will around a unifying motive. That's what he's saying here with that little word. It's it's the outer expression of the integration of thought, feeling, and will around a unifying motive. It's a challenge to view life from the perspective of Jesus. To view all of life from the perspective of Jesus. He came to serve. That was his purpose. He came to minister to others. He said it. Look at these couple of verses from the Gospel of Mark. Sitting down, he, Jesus, called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Then the tenth chapter, the Son of Man referring to himself. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Whether or not we have this disposition of servanthood ourselves comes to light and shows up when we're actually treated as one. you realize that? Time after time, whether we have this disposition of servanthood ourselves always just comes to the surface and shows up. It comes to light when we're actually treated as a servant. Often, why is, it up, why is it that we're upset with somebody else? Well, they didn't serve us. They didn't cater to us. They didn't do our bidding in our time frame. They didn't work as hard or see the situation as we do. They just see the situation differently. And Paul is telling us that the quality of humility, self-giving, interest in the welfare and the well-being of others comes as a result of our modeling of disposition around the character of Jesus. Day after day, our culture just pumps into us an emphasis on our rights, our need for self-expression, our winning by intimidation. You deserve it. Get all you can. The drive for success and power and position and status and accumulation. Position. But scripture here is asking if I'm modeling my disposition around not the world, but according to the character of Jesus. Was he selfish? Absolutely not. Who in your life would want to find and know Christ because of your daily disposition, your attitude, your temperament. Paul realizes the necessity of illustrating what he means by the self-giving humility of Jesus, even with his unchanging deity. Look at the, the next verses in the flow here. Who, Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, with our finite minds, this side of heaven will never really be able to, to fully comprehend. We cannot completely ever fully understand what all this means. But Paul is saying that Jesus possesses the unchanging nature and character of God. It's a picture of majesty, majestic nature, all that he was and is and ever will be. But he didn't view his glorious nature, his unchanging deity, as something to be selfishly clung to at all costs. He left his place of honor and equality with God in in eternity, and he came here to serve us. He didn't cease to be God, but he gave up his rights as God. That's really important. Don't misunderstand what Paul's writing about here. He did not, he did not cease to be God, but he gave up his rights as God. Jesus is fully God, fully human, not some sort of half-half hybrid. Fully God, fully human. And he became one of us. One author says that he surrendered that, that which he loved in order that he might serve those whom he loved. He made a personal decision, a choice to be a servant. And that servanthood, that decision, that choice took him to the very depths of our greatest need, our need for forgiveness of sin. Our need for life as it was meant to be. Our need, our need for salvation. He accepted a servant's place, entered a sinful world, took on a selfless position, and endured an excruciating death. It's an unparalleled, unparalleled humility that we see in Jesus, and Paul writes about it here. Unparalleled humility. Being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. No one forced him to become truly human. No one forced him to die. He wasn't forced to sacrifice his life. He went obediently to the cross, and his death was the climax and the price of his humility. So here's the message then. Here's the message, that the living God, eternal Immortal, invisible, has at one quite definite point broken into our human history in an unprecedented way. In an actual life lived out on this earth, God has come and spoken and given the full and final revelation of himself. In Jesus, God has come. God is with us. And Paul says that he is the exalted Lord that we serve. It's this Jesus who became like us, took on full humanity, it's still this as exalted Lord that we serve him. God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the exalted Lord that we serve. At this point, Paul writing here just pulls out all the stops. It's incredible. He uses a word that's found nowhere else in the scripture of the New Testament. It's a word that apparently he made up. It's used nowhere else. He says literally, therefore God super exalted him. That's the literal translation of it. Super exalted him, the highest exaltation, in a class all by himself. He's not merely a good moral teacher. He is not one prophet among many. He's not one way among all the options and all the alternatives. He is given a name above all other names. And What is it? What's the name? What's the name above every name? Well, we know from the context it's God's name verse 11 identifies Jesus as Lord Lord giving Jesus the name Lord God is the ultimate of all honors it's no one else's name don't miss the point here don't miss the point this is a gain in official glory and recognition not essential glory and honor it's a gain in official glory, recognition Not in essential glory and honor. He has possessed that essential glory from all eternity. The name that is above every name is Lord. And Jesus is that. Lord God. Now, remember, don't lose sight of the fact that all this is illustration. When we are reading down through scripture, every time, and I've told you this before, every time you see the word, therefore you want to stop and think about what it's there for okay therefore so everything that has Paul has written earlier now is becoming illustration to what he says next all of this all of this is illustration of how you and I are meant to live in the world as Jesus followers and it moves us to almost Inexpressible emotion, it breaks us open at the deepest awareness of the attitude that we're to have toward our Lord, our attitude our own lives, our attitude in all of our relationships, every relationship. Jesus' humility, self-giving, servanthood is both the motive and the method of our lives as Christians. Everything that Paul's writing about here, it's our motive, it's our reason, but it's also our, our method. It's the way you and I are called to live. It's not about me. We ought to, every one of us, be able to say that. Every one of us. It's not about me. We're actually called to live out our lives together in the church as an expression of His incarnation of his taking on human flesh, him becoming one of us. Jesus came and gave himself completely and we're to live and share and give and love and sacrifice and serve with that fullness of joy because of him. His spirit alive, his spirit living in us. In us. So as we've moved through the first part of chapter 2 here, in effect, if you've got your Bibles open, you look at verses 3 and 4, you kind of move back a little bit, do a kind of a recap of the flow here. We move through the first part of chapter 2, and in effect, Paul has said, verses 3 and 4, You've heard me, you've heard me call you to count others more important than yourselves, to look out for the interests of others. Then verses 5 and 6, he says, You've heard me describe the example of Jesus, who lived this out and humbly coming to this earth, being exalted as Lord, highest honor. Now, therefore, he says, I'm going going to give you more explicit directions as to how you're called to live this out yourselves. Let me give you some more explicit direction. And what he writes about next then is the purpose in our work. The purpose in our work. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose now be clear here paul is certainly not suggesting that we work for our salvation he doesn't say that he doesn't write that we don't work for our salvation as though we can earn it or merit it or deserve it or somehow become good enough. That's not what he's saying. He says, work it out, work it out, which means work to full completion. We're to let the riches of Christ, his abundance, work its way out in our living so that we're not in the way. We let his character, his nature, his disposition work its way out in our lives so that we're not in the way of others seeing him, recognizing him. At first, the young gallery guide did his job very well. He was excited about it. He uh, enjoyed it. He was thrilled to be a part of the, of the museum. He was to lead groups of, of patrons to the paintings displayed on the walls, answer their questions, and then step out of the way to let the people view those exquisite works of art. But as time went on, after a bit of time, the young man forgot the task that he was called to do. And as people made their adoring comments about the paintings he began to smile and say, well, thank you. Thank you. As they made their comments about the great works of art, he he would say, "Ah, so glad you like it. And rather than stepping out of the way of viewing, he began to inch closer. And he even began to extend his arm up over the frames and And even stand so close that he blocked the view of the paintings themselves, concealing the masterpiece that he was meant to show. And very soon the gallery director had to call him in and explain explain to him very clearly the position is not about you, don't block the viewing of the masterpiece. Get the picture. Tom Rayner, if you have the book with you, I know I know Miles does. <laughs> Tom Rayner in his book, it's on page thirty eight, says that we get into trouble when we're only looking out for our own needs and our own preferences. He writes, I want the music my way, I want the building my way, I'm upset because the pastor didn't visit me and I don't want to change anything in the church. Those kinds of attitudes block the master. We're to will and to act according to his good purpose, not our needs, not our preferences. We're to live, we're to live as a loving and faithful servant acknowledging what does he say? How does it flow? What does he say next? Acknowledging the power. The power in the light. Here it is. The power beyond our light. These next verses. It's God who works in you and to will and to act according to his good purpose. Then he writes, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. You see it's got little quotes around that? That little phrase, children of God without fault, warped crooked generation. He's actually quoting from the Old Testament there, from the book of Deuteronomy. Then you'll shine among them like stars in the sky. There's divine empowering, he says. He's at work within us. As we cooperate with him, we see the potential of our lives realized. F.B. Meyer writes this. He may be working in you to confess to another person your unkind speech or action. Work it out. He may be working in you to give up that line of business about which you've become doubtful lately. Give it up. He may be working in you to be sweeter in your home, gentler in your speech. Begin it. He may be working in you to alter your relationship with that person with whom you're having dealings that are not as they should be. Alter them. This very day, let God begin to speak and work and will and then work out what he is working in. God wants to work in you and through you. Yield to him and let this be the day. Now, Paul writes here, do everything. And we say, well, he doesn't mean everything. There's some things that it's just probably doesn't have to apply to what Paul is writing here. He doesn't mean everything. And it's not everything. It's not that response, and it's not that relation. It's not that attitude. It's not that action. He doesn't mean, huh, no. He can't mean everything. You know what? He means everything. He means everything. What is it then? It's a God-focused everyday life. A God-focused everyday life. We could even call it mundane faithfulness. Even in the ordinary things. The things we'd say, well, that doesn't matter. That doesn't count. Well, that's so small. Well, nobody's going to know. Well, who, who even cares about that? We could go through our lists, and we probably all have it. He doesn't mean that. Well, mundane, everyday, everything faithfulness. When God, when God calls us to be a follower, he calls us to be different. When Paul writes about being blameless and pure, he's not saying, thankfully, he's not saying perfect and flawless, I'm thankful for that. Hey, it's not, it doesn't mean perfect and flawless. The word blameless here means unmixed or undiluted. It's wine that's not watered down. It's a precious metal with no alloy to lessen the value. It means highest quality. Highest quality. And the word pure here means innocent and harmless. And it actually means lacking poison. Lacking Poison. So Paul is saying, let your character be such that the poison is removed. Now last week, Darwin in his message talked about, from James, the tongue being like a fire. But it can also be full of poison. And Paul here is saying, take the poison away. The words that are used to describe the world, warped and crooked, That's where we get our word scoliosis. Twisted, disfigured, distorted world. And that's the world as it is, isn't it? Twisted, distorted, disfigured. Absolutely. What's the church, the Lord's people? What are we to look like? We're simply to live differently. It's our calling. Straight, moral, upright, truthful, honest, Ethical, just, good, honorable. But Paul writes, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the way. That's the life that you and I, God's people, the Lord's people, the church, that's the life we're called to live. And folks like that can't help but shine. And that's the next thing that Paul writes about. Live a life that's different. All of that within this piece. And Jesus talks about it as well in Matthew. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise you and say what a great person you are. Ah, well, let's see. Oh, I guess it doesn't say. I'm sorry, it didn't say that. That's a, that's a whole different translation. Okay? Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus is the light of the world and here he says that we're to be reflecting light. We're, like, we're to be mirrors of his light. We're to be reflecting light. The brightness we see in him is to be the brightness we become. See your good works and praise your Father in heaven. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's all about him. It's not about what we do or what we want. It's all about who he is and what he does and what he calls us to be Through him. Our salvation glorifies the Savior, not the saved. Our church is to reflect Him, not our wants and desires. You and I are called to hold firmly to the promise of that. That's what Paul writes about holding firmly to the promise. As you hold firmly to the word of life. We never want to lose sight of what we're about. That's really the question. Why do we exist as a church? Is there a primary objective? Well, it can get stated all kinds of ways, different ways. But Paul says that we're to hold out the word of life. Another way of translating it is to hold firmly to the word of life. We're to hold it out to others and hold it firmly in our own lives so that there's something that we actually have to give. You can't give what you don't have. Now, at least, at, you know, we've been talking about our values through this message series, different values. We've lifted up those. But at least two of them, at least two of the values, our stated values as a congregation, apply firmly right here. This one, life transformation, we will propel each other toward a transforming relationship with Jesus. Well, that's what Paul's writing about here. A transforming relationship. We're called to be different. This one, action, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we will actively serve and care and give to advance the mission of God. It's about Him. Once upon a time, there was a little frog... Who had a problem? His pond was drying up. And if he couldn't find a source of water, he would dry up too. He heard about a flowing stream that was over the hill. And he wanted to get there. But his little froggy legs weren't adequate for the long trip. And so he thought, and he said to himself, "Ah, I've got an idea. I've got an idea. And so he talked to two crows. He talked two crows into putting the ends of a stick in each of their beaks. And the frog would bite the center of the stick and hold on with his mouth. And the crows would fly they would each hold an end of the stick and he would grasp on with his mouth and they would take off and fly and the crows agreed to his plan and off they flew toward the flowing stream with the little frog mouth clamped tightly to the stick the crows went higher and higher And as they flew, a rabbit down on the ground saw all that flying by. And surprised and impressed, the rabbit yelled out, Who came up with that great idea? (laughs) And the little frog heard the rabbit. And puffing up with pride, he couldn't resist. And he, I... Let's each determine it. I won't let the church be about me. The servant example is Jesus. His humility counters our pride. He's the exalted Lord we serve. His purpose, His purpose is our work. It's his light we reflect. Our message, our salvation, our attitudes, our actions, our help through struggle, our successes, are all meant to glorify him. It's all his great idea. All of it. It's his great idea. It's not about us. It's all about him. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, may this realization of your humility, your exaltation affect all that we do, all that we do, every relationship that we have, every attitude we hold, because we realize every moment of our life is not about us, but about another opportunity to be a servant giving glory and honor to you as Lord. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray it. And all all God's people said, Amen. amen, amen.